0: so I'm going to admit a few things to you guys this morning <laughs> I do this every once in a while um, but I'm going to admit to you that this morning I'm not really in a great headspace or a space or frame of mind there's a bunch of factors for that um, but to be honest, I was, I'm a little frustrated. I've been a little frustrated this morning. Not with anything that anybody's done or anything like that. But I've been frustrated because I've kind of been debating with the Lord. And my wife laughs at me all the time because I'll know what I'm supposed to preach or what God's asked me to do. And I'm like, I really don't want to. <laughs> i like, I really don't want to preach that. I really don't want to talk about that. I really don't want to do that. Like I have a choice in the matter. <laughs> And, you know, <laughs> as we, I get ready and I was getting ready for for this, uh, for the past couple weeks, the Lord has kind of put it on my mind to use a new Bible translation, one that I haven't really liked in the past and one that I've never wanted to use before. But the Lord began sp- speaking to me and saying, I want you to use the new international version of the Bible. I'm like, I don't want to. (laughs) I don't want to. I want to use my King James or my ESV. And the Lord just wouldn't let it go. So I ended up, you know, begrudgingly buying a new premium Bible because, you know, I cannot stand to buy new Bibles. (laughs) And uh, so I was frustrated about that. And then the Lord began to put on my heart what he wanted me to preach And I was like, "Lord, I don't want to preach on that. Like, I I just—it's not exciting. I (laughs) don't—I don't want to preach on that." And then Faith, you know, my wonderful wife, she's like, "You know, oh Lord, forgive him. Like, he's saying your word's not exciting." And I'm like, "That's not what I meant. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just." Listen, I started out as an itinerant evangelist and I love preaching. Hopefully I've commu- I've shown that to you guys. I love preaching the gospel and I love preaching mo- uh, messages that are uh, challenging, that are cutting, that are exciting that you know encourage you to live or you know the gospel or reveal the glory of God. Like I like preaching like evangelistic style messages. And um the Lord began convicting me that it was time that I preached a much more pastoral message. I'm like, Lord, can I not be a pastor and preach the evangelistic style messages like I have been? It's like, no, you're going to preach a pastoral message. And I was like, great. I'll do it, Lord. I'll do it. This Sunday, I got it. And he's like, no, 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 no. no. This is going to be a series. I'm like, no, I don't want to preach a series. I was <laughs> like, I don't want to preach a series, but, you know, God always wins. And when he says it, the matter is settled. So I just want to tell you guys, I'm I'm going to be preaching a, a different way and a different style for the next few weeks. And I don't know how long it's going to last. I'm just trying to be obedient. Um, but here's what we're going to be preaching on. Zach, if you want to throw this slide up. Signs of a healthy church. Signs of a healthy church. Now. A lot of books have been written on this topic, and a lot of people have talked about a lot of different things. This isn't going to be like those. This is going to be a little bit different. I don't even know what it's going to be like yet. I'm just trying my best to listen. But for the next few weeks, I'm going to go real, real slow and be real intentional and not skip over any details. So some of it, you may be like, oh, that is just baseline, simple. Great. Listen to it again. Because one thing I've found in ministry, listen, I like complexity. I like complicated. I'm married, so obviously I like complicated. <laughs> Ooh, strike one. Strike one. Let's see if I can strike out before the end of the message. No. I, I I I like complex, and, you know, if you guys come on Wednesday nights or have watched the Wednesday night services online, you guys would know, like, I like getting into the deep theological things and breaking down words and using really big words that most people don't know. Like, I like that stuff. I like complicated. But one of the things that I've found in my limited experience is that sometimes we so desire the complicated and the complex that we overstep the simple and it's like we, we run for the steak and potatoes of the word. You know what, you know what I mean? Like we, We're like, oh yeah, that's milk, that base stuff. Like, so we run past the simple to go to the steak and potatoes. And let me tell you something. If you ever go out to Longhorn to eat, and I'm just saying Longhorn because that's a local steakhouse. You go to a steakhouse to eat, whatever your favorite one is, and you say you get a steak and a baked potato. Which one is the star of the dish? The steak all day long. Now what happens when you choke on a potato? You're not thinking about the steak while you're choking on a potato. The only thing you're thinking about is the potato. And a lot of times what happens is we get so such a hurry to move past the milk to go into the steak of potatoes to focus on the star of the dish, we end up choking. There's a saying that from a show called Smallville It's just about the childhood, teenage years of Superman. But anyway, there's a show called Smallville. And during that show, Lex Luthor, you know, Superman's arch nemesis, his father makes a statement. Lionel Luthor says, the devil is in the details. The devil is in the details. And that statement has always stuck with me because... If you skip over the simplicity and the baseline stuff to get to the complex or to get to the big picture stuff or to get to the fun stuff and you jump past the details, sometimes they'll bite you. And it's the simplistic things. Does anyone here know how Al Capone was finally arrested? Yeah, do you want to know how he was pulled over or how he was caught? Yeah, he was actually... When he was pulled over and actually arrested, it was because of a busted taillight. You can look that up. He was pulled over because of a busted taillight, and they ended up being able to mount a case against him because of tax evasion. But the initiation was something as simple as a busted taillight. The reason I say that is because that small detail unhinged everything. The tax evasion, small details, unhinged everything, and it came and it bit him. Now, I'm glad that it did because, you know, he was a wicked man and deserved to be, you know, indicted. But just as we focus on the bad, the devil is in the details, sometimes God is in the details too. And when you jump past the simplicity to get to the meat and potatoes or the complicated things of the Word, sometimes you miss some of the blessing and the promises that are found in the simplicity. So we're going to go slow. And we're going to go simple. And I try to do this on Wednesday nights. But this is going to be way more simple than that. This is me communicating not a fiery burning message to get everybody excited. This is me communicating from a pastor's heart. Because after all, I started out as an evangelist. But God did something in my life and turned me to a pastor. And I now as a pastor, I want to share with you. What I think a church could be what I think a church should be can you imagine with me use your imagination for just a moment can you imagine with what it would be like what would it be like if you are going through a difficult situation in your life say that you go to the doctor that week and the doctor tells you hey um, we got to do some tests because I think you have a form of malignant cancer And you are devastated by this news. And you don't call anybody. You don't tell anybody. You don't text anybody. You don't make a post about it. You just keep it to yourself because you don't know what to do and you're scared. So all you do is just pray about it. But then on Sunday, you walk in the door and two or three saints of God meet you at the door and say, Hey, God told me what's going on in your life. And we're going to take you to the front of the church and pray for you. And you're going to be healed. And then it happens. Or what about this? What about you are going through your week and the circumstances of life just get the best of you and you go to a a bar and get plastered? It could happen. You go to a bar, like situations just overwhelm you. You have no idea what to do. You're like, I, I just can't take it anymore. I just need to get rid of some stress. You go to the bar, you get absolutely plastered. You say, do things that you probably shouldn't do. And then the rest of the week, you don't want to tell anybody because you're too ashamed and you're walking in condemnation. And then Sunday morning, you walk into the church and two or three wonderful saints of God meet you at the door and say, hey, the Lord told me that you had a fall this week, but he wanted me to tell you that he is not mad at you, that he forgives you and that he loves you and that there's great for that space. Can you imagine what it would be like if the church was walking in that level of spirituality? That would be amazing. And I believe that that potential is there. I believe that a healthy church walks in that. But we don't see a lot of that, do we? We see a couple shining glimmers of individuals walking in those things. But I'm not talking about Christian celebrityism where you have like one or two people that have the goods and everybody else is just there to watch and spectate. No, I'm talking about where the entire church is full of people that are so spirit-filled and the church is so healthy that that kind of anointing flows over the entirety of the congregation. That's what I think a healthy church is. And so... I want to go slow because I don't want anyone to be left behind. Now, this isn't an indictment or an assault against anyone's intelligence. It's not. Actually, the reason that I want to go simply is because I know how intelligent you guys are in the things of Christianity. I know that many of you would be qualified in most other countries around the world to be Bible teachers. I'm serious. If you went in other countries and you've seen some of the people that taught the gospel there that were Bible teachers, many of you guys know the word and the things of Christianity far better than they do. But that's the problem sometimes, is that we are so intellectual and we are so versed in Christianity and the Bible that we forget about the simplicity. So this isn't this isn't I'm going slow because if I went fast, I don't think you guys would keep up. No, this is we always go fast. And so now I want to take a step back and just say, hey, let's remind ourselves of the foundations of what a church should be. And then let's build from that. Is that OK with you guys? Like if we just go pastor instead of being preachery, if we be pastory. <laughs> yeah, good words. That's right. I make them up all the time. I mean seriously. Because we could do something else and be disobedient to God and that, that that's what you want. But <laughs> the devil, the devil's a full-blown liar like Asher says. All right. So let's let's go and let's dig into this. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 today. <clears throat> for the majority of this, I feel like we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 for the majority of this series. But today I'm going to start and lay the foundation in Romans 12, okay? So we'll read the text, and then we'll get into this. All right, so Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And I'm going to be in the NIV. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Amen. Amen. So on that graphic that I put up, or that I had them put up, he's going to put it back up. But on (laughs) on that graphic, it's signs of a healthy church. That's what I, I asked Faith to throw this together on Thursday, um, and she did this in, you know, about 15 to 20 minutes. She's amazing, but she threw this together for me, and I didn't choose this name haphazardly or arbitrarily or just throw a name together. I picked this name because even in the intentionality of the title of this series, I wanted to communicate a very specific message. So when we're talking about signs of a healthy church, a sign, if you look up sign in the Webster's Dictionary, a sign is a visible or a tangible indicator of something that is imperceivable at the time. So if you're driving down the interstate and you see a sign that says 10 miles to Cleveland, you can't see Cleveland. But the sign lets you know where Cleveland's at. It tells you what direction you're going. It tells you how fast to go. Signs can be, you know, the weather. Like if it gets cloudy and you see the dark thunderclouds, that's a sign that bad weather's coming. Like signs communicate something that you can't perceive or see at that particular moment. But the sign communicates a message to tell you what is coming, or what is just around the corner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what a sign is, right? You walk in to uh, getting ready to walk into a restaurant, and there's a sign on the door that says, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Guess what? You walk in there without shoes, you won't get service because the sign is communicating something to you. Think about that old song, uh, signs, signs, everywhere there's signs. (laughs) Like they're all over the place. You know you're driving down the interstate construction ahead, reduce speed, you know we all know what those signs mean. you know those speed minimum signs on the on the interstate <laughs> don't go slower than this right here <laughs> we 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 know what signs are they communicate something to us, you know five miles to Disneyland. God forbid. <laughs> but they, they communicate a message to you. And so when I'm talking about signs of a healthy church, I'm talking about something that you can see or hear or smell or feel or touch, something you can handle, something tangible that you can perceive that communicates the state and the condition of the church. Because you can't look at a church building and say that's a healthier and unhealthy church. There are churches that are millions of dollars facilities filled, overflowing with people, and they're some of the most unhealthy institutions on the planet. I'm reminded of a a story that's alleged to Thomas Aquinas. Does everybody know who Thomas Aquinas is? The angelic doctor of the church. He's the one that came up with um, the um, cohesive five classical arguments for the existence of God um, super, super smart individual. The Catholic Church references him as the Angelic Doctor. Uh, he was in a conversation, and the Pope at that time approached Thomas Aquinas and was, you know, kind of bragging about the condition of the church. And he said, he said, Saint Aqui—well, he wasn't Saint at the time. He sa- said, Aquinas, it can no longer be said of the Church, silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas, without missing a beat, also said, Yes, but the church can also no longer say arise and walk. So money isn't a sign of a healthy church. It's not. It's not a sign of a healthy church. I'll tell you something else attendance isn't a sign of a healthy church. It can be an indicator, but just because the church is growing doesn't mean it's healthy. Cancer grows, mold grows. Poison ivy grows. Ticks grow. So just because something's growing doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because something has money doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because it's big doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because it's pretty doesn't mean it's healthy. The Pharisees were pretty. Why did sepulchers full of dead men's bones? So we're talking about something that is perceivable, something that I can look at, something that I can see, that I can understand, that communicates a message to me about the condition of the church. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're communicating here. And that's what this whole series is going to be about. So we're starting with the title of the series, Signs of a Healthy Church. And I'm going to share with you guys a mind-blowingly profound revelation. Are you ready for it? (laughs) Healthy church is two words. <laughs> I'm not being facetious. I'm, I am being facetious. <laughs> healthy church is two words. Healthy is an adjective that describes the subject or the object of the phrase, which would be church. So that's what I want to talk about. Before I can even talk about signs of a healthy church, I need to explain what signs are and what healthy is and what church is. So let's start with church. Does everybody know what church is? Because we just throw that word around. All of us, individually, collectively, corporately. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to give us what I want to call like a working definition of church for this series. Now, I hate it when people say I'm going to give you a working definition. Look, I read a lot. And when I read, sometimes the author will be trying to explain something. And they'll say, I'm going to give you a working definition of this term. And then the definition they give you is like a paragraph long. And it's like, that's not a working definition. That's a paragraph. I need a, something to say. Simply put, give me one sentence of like seven or eight words so that I can commit that to memory so that I know when you use that word what you're talking about. And I hate the fact that we have to be like this that we have to define our terms before we can even say a sentence anymore. Because used to, I could say the word woman and you guys know what I was talking about. There was a point in time where I could say woman and everybody would know that I'm talking about a biologic female that is capable of bearing children that possesses a uterus and ovaries. Like Everybody would know that's what I'm talking about when I said woman. Now nobody can define that word. (laughs) <laughs> I know, but you're also not in politics. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I want to buy every politician in the country a web- copy of Webster's Dictionary. That's what I want to do. Like, yeah, I'm talking about the original, back when Webster's Dictionary actually was worth a flip. That's what I'm talking about. Anymore in our society, in our culture, you have to define what you're saying. And this this isn't just I I use woman because that's a, a that's a culturally hot topic right now. But it has been that way for quite some time. I think about Joseph Smith and the Mormons and the way that they have taken Christianity's terms. Let me tell you something. Mormons are not Christians. Mormonism is not Christianity. And there's few things that make me as angry as when I see them doing the Christian statistics and they throw Mormonism under Christian statistics. They are not Christians. They use Christian terms and then redefine them. So you could be in a conversation with a Mormon and talking about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and redemption and you know salvation and all these things and they mean completely different things to them than they would to you. That's the state that we're in. So now we have to take time and actually diligently define the words that we use. So I'm going to give you a biblically sound working definition of a church. And the first, I'm going to give you several aspects of that definition, but don't freak out. I'm going to give you a simply put definition at the end of it before we move into healthy so that that way you guys know when I'm talking about church and I say church, this is what I'm talking about, okay? Is that cool? All right, so... I don't I didn't grab Romans 12:3 through 7 to or is it through 7 whatever I didn't grab Romans 3, 12, 3 through 7 to just arbitrarily throw in there so I have some scripture I'm going to use this to build my definition of church okay so let's exegete the scripture for a little bit for the, by the grace given me this is Paul writing for by the grace given me I say to every one of you Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself in sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. So here's the first aspect of church. Paul, when he says, for by the grace that's given to me, grace is gift. By the gift that's given to me. What gift is he talking about here? See, Paul had never been to Rome when this epistle was written. So he is an apostle to the Gentiles. So technically, he would be the apostle over the Roman church. But he's never been there. So he's not just coming in, thundering, holding his position over their head with pride and gumption. He is saying, by the grace given me. He's taking this posture of humility. When he's saying, by the grace or the gift given to me, what he's actually saying is, I'm an apostle. This is my office. It was given to me by God. So he is taking his position in the church and he's presenting it to them with humility because he wants them to respond in humility does that make sense this whole thing is layered with humility I may not have explained that very well. Paul, an apostle, had every right to come in there storming and saying, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. It's recognized in Jerusalem just as Peter or Cephas is the apostle to the Jews. Here's what I want you to do. Da, 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 da. And they probably would have been very, very angry with him if he would have taken that approach. But Paul, being having um, the ability to, what is the word, smooth? really well he knows how to approach this situation with tact and so he is communicating to them in this spirit of humility because what paul's wanting to do is uh, a lot of scholars that studied this epistle and even the epistle itself would give some indication paul is wanting to travel to rome and then use that to set up a base for his next mission into spain and then have rome then contribute to the needs of the church at jerusalem so he is Counting on them supporting missionary endeavors and then giving to the needs of the church at Jerusalem. So he doesn't want to sabotage this relationship before it even gets going. So he's coming in humility. But he's not neglecting his position. He's maintaining his position in the church, but he's proceeding with humility and then asking for them to operate in humility as well. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. One of the surest signs of an unhealthy church is an arrogant leader. One of the most prominent indicators that a church is destined for destruction and a lot of hurt people is a narcissistic, narcissistic leader. And I can't help but think about places like Mars Hill that had this meteoric rise to have thousands and thousands of congregants at multiple locations. And then when the ball finally dropped and the narcissism was exposed, the church was closed within weeks. Pride. Is one of the worst. Sins. And the reason I say that is because pride is one of the only sins that will masquerade as righteousness. It will masquerade as humility. It will masquerade as religious zeal. It's like, yes, I'm attacking them and I'm attacking their position and I'm attacking their views and I'm thundering about it, but I'm just proceeding with righteous indignation. I see this all the time especially in theological circles where people are debating different aspects of Scripture, the things that they say about one another and about their beliefs. And it's like, I'm I'm egalitarian, meaning that I believe that women have the same ability to operate in the church as men do. I believe that with every fiber of my being. But do you know that if you communicate that, there are multiple people, a multiplicity of individuals out there who will say that in order for you to hold that belief, you must not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? And I'm like, no. Just because I interpret Scripture differently than you does not mean that you have a better or a higher view of Scripture than I do. There are people out there that when you talk about the gifts of the Spirit They will attack your theology. It's pride. It's pride. And what it does is it just destroys unity. It destroys unity. It destroys the cohesiveness of the church. And it undermines the church's witness to the nation. Did you know that it is like, I forget what year the statistics were done, but I will say this conservatively, There were statistics and things done, studies done. And it is like some odd 85 to 90% more likely for a leader in the church to be a narcissist than it is for anyone else in society. And pride (laughs) was what caused Lucifer to fall from heaven. And it saturates and permeates the church. And Paul here is addressing the situation without even addressing the situation. Like without even having to deal with it directly and come against them and say, you're prideful or anything. He just says, I implore you, I beseech you by the gift. I'm an apostle, but I didn't get to be an apostle by studying. I'm speaking on Paul's behalf here. Like Paul says it's a gift. My apostleship it's a gift. I am what I am because of God, not because of my study, not because of my commitment to the religious or the pharisaical lifestyle, not because of anything that I've done I got to be an apostle. I'm in a pastor of Faith Memorial Church not because of anything that I've done. I didn't study enough, I didn't pray enough, I didn't read enough. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because God said CA and faith are going to come to Cleveland, Tennessee at Pastor Faith Memorial Church. That's why I'm here. It's a gift. And if we continue to operate and live our lives understanding that every single thing that we have and every position that we hold is nothing more than a gift from the grace and the mercy of God, then we can't help but operate in humility but the moment that you start thinking that you're a good preacher because you study well, you're on a slippery slope straight to hell. The moment that you start thinking that you are a great congregant or you're important to the church because you have money and that you have money because of something that you did, you're on a slippery slope straight to hell. The moment that you start attributing the things that you have to yourself You're on a dangerous road. Only when we begin to realize that everything that we have ultimately belongs to God and that we're just made stewards of that which is His. The earth is His and the fullness thereof. The church is His body. The gifts are of the Holy Spirit. They belong to Him. The offices are of the Holy Spirit. They belong to Him. The fruits are of the Holy Spirit. They belong to Him. You're only what you are because God gave you that. Let me tell you something even more profound than that. The fact that you have a belief in God at all is a gift. Your very faith that you adhere to and that you hold on to and use to believe in Christ Jesus for your salvation is a gift from God. If He didn't give you that prevenient grace to supersede your depravity, you would be utterly incapable of even believing on the goodness of Jesus. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And so Paul comes in humility. And what he's saying here is, use sober judgment. I'm not talking about being free from addiction to drugs and alcohol and other things. I'm not talking about, hey, don't get plastered. Although all that stuff's included. What I'm talking about when he he says sober judgment, he's talking about rational, logical judgment a rational and a logical assessment of the situation. Because when you realize that everything that you have, including your faith for salvation, is a gift, you begin to realize what Christianity actually is. That it is a great and wonderful and loving, merciful God and a bunch of wrecked, depraved individuals who became the objects of His love and mercy. That's why he says in accordance with faith, because it's all about believing in the grace and the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ and in humility, surrendering to his lordship. That's the first aspect of the church. You can't be a Christian without humility. Because to be a Christian, you have to acknowledge that you couldn't earn your own salvation. Your works were never going to be good enough, not even close. So the first aspect of the church is those that have humbly believed and surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then encourage. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So he goes into this list, and it's not a conclusive list. This is just a suggestive list of the different types of giftings in the church And he's using to illustrate the point that we all have differing gifts according to the grace of God. That God didn't give everybody the same gift. That there's diversity in the church. If you guys were here Wednesday, you heard me talk a little bit about unity. And true unity is comprised of diversity. Unity is impossible without diversity. Now, there is such a thing as conformity When everybody looks the same, talks the same, acts the same, thinks the same. And that's what society wants you to be. Conformed around their purpose and their ideology. Look, you can be quote unquote aligned with anybody if you're willing to sacrifice your opinions, your preconceptions, your beliefs, your convictions, and your identity and individuality as a whole. Look, I can be best friends and completely conformed and aligned with anybody so long as I'm willing to say, okay, you identify as a table, I'm gonna eat my dinner off your back. If I buy into their lunacy, then I can be I can be aligned with them. I can be unified with them. But that's not true unity. That's insanity. You identify as a mermaid. Let me fill the bathtub. Like, It's ridiculous. I watched an interview of a person saying that they identified as a wolf and that, so they worked at a zoo and the guy that was interviewing was like, well, do you go run with the wolves? And she's like, well, I work, and I, you know, I feed them. And he's like, no, 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 do you, when no one else is around, run with the pack? And she's like, no, Like I, they would attack me. And he's like, oh, so they don't recognize you as identifying as a wolf, but I'm supposed to. It's ridiculous. How about this? I identify as a rational person thinking that everybody that thinks that way is insane, and I need you to adhere to my identification. It's ridiculous. But you can be unified with them if you think that way. That's not unity. That's conformity. That's chaos and confusion. True unity requires diversity. Because it is only in the spirit of God that you can become the truest and the purest example of your individual self and still be perfectly unified to the entirety of the body. And that's why I I grabbed this passage, and I wanted to use this passage because it holds one of the metaphors that the church is linked to. The church has many metaphors that represent what it is throughout Scripture. You think about like the vine and the branches. That's a metaphor that illustrates the church's dependence on Christ. Or you think about the church being the bride of Christ. That's a metaphor that illustrates the intimacy and the fellowship and relationship between Christ and the church. The church is the Lord's army. That's another metaphor that illustrates the church carrying out the mission of God. There's metaphors and illustrations and pictorial examples of what the church is all throughout Scripture. But the reason that I wanted to use the body of Christ is because it illustrates a key point. It illustrates that the church is comprised of lots of individual members that make up one cohesive unit. My fingers are not the same thing as my toes, but they are all together, one body. My eye is not the same as my knee but they are both part of my body, and I do not want to lose either one of them. My ankle and my elbow are not the same thing. They are different members that serve a different function and purpose, but they are cohesively integrated into one unit called the body I think about, I always use this example, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, even though she's staring. Oh, wait, no, I said I was going to go three strikes. Let's throw her under the bus. (laughs) We we used to live at this house in Mississippi, and the bedrooms were at the end of the hall, and there's this long hallway. And you know down the hallway, as you walk down the hallway, you have doors on each side of the hallway that go to an adjacent room. Well, I forget what there was, but there was something in the hallway that kind of caused you to have to walk closer to this side than normal. You couldn't walk down the middle of the hallway. You kind of were forced to one side. And so Faith, my beautiful wife, is getting ready to step out to walk down that hallway, and she's barefoot, and she walks a little bit too close to the threshold of this door, and she catches her pinky toe on the side of the door. And let me tell you something. I have done something similar and she made fun of me. I was walking through the living room and we had this chair that was sitting there and I didn't see it because it was dark and I caught my pinky toe on the metal bottom frame of the chair. And when you hit your pinky toe, that's like one of the smallest visible members of your body. Every other part of your body responds to the pain in the pinky toe. Your hands are gripped, your teeth are clenched, your bowed over you're screaming and yapping and yelling and hollering and whining and crying your eyes may even be pouring out tears and you're saying all kinds of wonderful things. y'all are holy y'all are just saying praise the lord thank you jesus hallelujah (laughs) no other words or vernacular escapes your sanctified lips i'm sure but every thanks to your central nervous system your whole body feels it and reacts accordingly Because one member, one piece of your body had an experience. One piece of your body was affected, and therefore the whole body responded. That's what the church is supposed to be. One person's going through it, the whole church is responding and going through it. One person is celebrating, the whole church is responding and celebrating. Because the church is a diverse yet unified entity filled with many different individuals comprising a single, unified whole. That's what the church is supposed to be. Now, if you take the actual word church, ecclesia, it has this connotation of being called out. But not just... We always think about the negative. But it's called out... To be assembled together. There's a negative and a positive. You're called out from something to be assembled to something. Christ Jesus says it this way. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That they're called out from the world to be assembled around Jesus. That's what the church is. So the church is an assembly. So here's your working definition. You guys ready for it? The church is a diverse yet unified Assembly of believers that have surrendered to Jesus. Simple statement, isn't it? It's unified, yet it's diverse. It's an assembly. Now granted, we don't get to assemble together collectively. We have different sections that meet in different locations. Because I don't want to drive and then take a ship or a plane to Australia every every week to meet with my brothers and sisters there. That would be exhausting. Once, praise God, let's do it. But I can't do that every week. Because if I were there, then I wouldn't be able to be here with you guys. It's impossible for us to all physically congregate in a location week in and week out. That's why we have the invisible church where... One day we'll all come together and see one another in the fullness and we'll all be able to congregate in glory. And that'll be amazing. Absolutely amazing. I can't wait. I just finished Brian Cutshaw's book on Heaven on My Mind. And he talks about that very thing. The wonderful, wonderful worship service. He actually uses the illustration of days a 1,000 years and 1,000 years of a day. That What if we have 6,000 years to explore the glories of heaven and then on the seventh day the 1,000 year worship service? just sounds amazing. I can't wait. I can't wait to worship with Paul and Moses and Abraham and Elijah. I just can't wait. It would be fantastic. But here in the now, we have our local assemblies. Unified, yet diverse. On all believing and surrendering to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, that's the object, the church. But then you have the adjective describing the st- the state of the church, healthy. And that's what we want to be, right? Everybody likes to be healthy. Raise your hand if you'd rather be sick. I almost got some of you. <laughs> Raise your hand if you'd rather be sick. Listen, I'm going to confess to you right now. I'm going to throw myself under the bus. Statistics have shown that happy people are far less likely to get sick. When they do get sick, they recover faster, they heal faster, and they get sick less often. That's statistics. Happy people get sick less and recover faster than unhappy people. If you guys, you guys are starting to get to know me, I am generally very happy. Almost 95% of the time, I am a happy person. I'm very optimistic. However, for the last year to year and a half now, I've had a lot of events in my life that have accrued a lot of stress. And for me to get stressed is actually a big deal because I never get stressed. But for the last year and a half, I have struggled with stress and I've had bouts of depression and God's working, working some things out for me to make me a better leader, so He says. But <laughs> it's been a difficult season. It's been a difficult season. And I have noticed that during the last year and a half, I have gotten sick more often than I ever had my whole life. Listen, Faith had the flu, and not only did I help take care of her and sleep in the same bed and minister to her, I never took the first shot, never took the first bit of medicine, and never got sick at all. And that's happened, happened on multiple occasions. I just didn't get sick. I have been sick constantly for the past year and a half and when i get sick i am a baby i hate it i hate being sick i milk it for everything it's worth i whine and complain i i do that's just who i am i i am not good at being sick i know that there's people out there that are like running 102 fevers snotting and coughing and hacking and still working their high end off that is not me <laughs> i'm sick i want to lay in bed for days on end. And I want to be waited on hand and foot. That's me. (laughs) And even when I'm recovering, I'm like, I don't feel a 100 yet. Keep taking care of me. (laughs) I, I don't like being sick. I do not. And you know, I am so grateful that in this wonderful covenant that we have with the Lord, sickness is ultimately caused by sin, right? If there was no sin, there would be no sickness. Now, I'm not saying that every time you get sick, it's because of an immediate sin in your life. There are people that teach that. They're unbiblical and wrong. Sickness has its ultimate causation in sin, but sometimes you get sick because you live in a fallen world and you're susceptible to things that wouldn't be in existence if we weren't in a fallen world. Now, there is provision for us to live in a realm of divine health above the reach of sin sin and sickness. I'm just still trying to figure out how to get there. But I believe that it is possible. But for those of us who do get sick, we have this wonderful provision in Scripture for healing. Amen? I love it. One of my favorite examples. You don't have to turn over there. I'll just read it to you real quick. Um, Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 5 says this. It says, surely he took up our pain. He being the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He took our pain and bore our suffering. A more literal translation of that would be he took our sickness and bore our disease. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Peter quotes that and he changes the are to were. By his wounds, we were healed. Matthew picks up on that same theme. Quoting this exact same scripture. And then James talks about the provision for healing with the anointing of oil by the elders, and there's numerous other scriptures. Paul talks about it in the very book Romans that we're in. Talks about you know that spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells within you, and you also by that same spirit shall have your mortal bodies quickened, meaning brought to life, meaning healed. There is provision in the New Testament for healing. And that's true of our physical bodies how much more the body of Christ how much more the body of Christ because I'm going to tell you something I look out at the signs that I see and remember signs are visible or tangible indications of the state and condition of the church look if you walk into a hospital and you see someone hooked up to an IV do you have do you ask them are you healthy I'm serious. Have you walked into a hospital or walked into someone's home and seen them with like that classic cartoon ice pack with a little knob right there sitting on their head and like covered up with a blanket and a the therm- thermometer, the glass one with the little ball the, sit- sticking out of their mouth? Have you walked in and seen somebody laying like that and be like, you look really healthy. <laughs> yeah. You might say redundantly, are you sick? And they say, no, I'm dressed for Halloween. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Here's your sign. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but those there are visible indicators of their condition. And I have to be honest, when I look at the church that I see in our day, I don't see signs that it's healthy. Now, there are select groups and select ministries that would show some really good signs saying that they are on the right track but I'm talking by and large at the church. When I look at the church, I don't see many signs that it's healthy. I see a lot of signs that it's sick and that it's in need of healing. And I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, as a minister, someone that has been in ministry for 12 years now, or going on 12 years, rather, someone that's been in ministry for going on 12 years now, that's not a super long time, but as I've been in ministry, it looks sicker to me today than it did when I started. And that breaks my heart. And there's statistics to back it. I, I guess I'm going to do like an, an advertising section for Brian Cutshaw today. But I read another one of his books called The Armor Bearer. And in that book, he lists out these statistics the state of the church and pastors and he's using it to to illustrate like pastors need people to support them and to be in their corner and on their side but some of the statistics was 4000 churches are planted annually 7000 churches close 90% of pastors say they're ready to quit 80% of pastors say that if they had an opportunity for a better job or they could do anything else they would immediately leave the ministry. 60 to 70% of pastors say that ministry negatively affects their marriage and their family life. 40 or 50% now I'm just throwing these out like close approximations because I I don't do numbers or statistics well, but 40 or 50% of pastors say that their marriage has more than one time been on the verge of divorce. And it's like some odd, like 40% of pastors or 25-30% of pastors have been divorced. And some of the causation of that is directly linked to issues in the ministry. And that's, that's not even a fraction of the statistics that he lists out, or some of the other statistics that I've heard. That churches... And denominations are struggling to find people to fill the vacancies in church. Now, I'm thankful that that problem is a lot less common in Pentecostal churches than it is in other churches, but it's still a very, very, very across-the-board s- situation. And that breaks my heart. It literally breaks my heart for the state of the church. The church is sick, but there is healing available. If there's healing, I cannot believe that God, through the atoning sacrifice of Christ Jesus, would provide a healing work for our physical body but would not provide one for Christ's spiritual body. There is healing available for the church, and then just as I said, there's a difference between divine healing and divine health. I believe that there's a realm of divine health that the church could get to and stay in. And that's what I want. Now I want to do two things. I want to share a vision that I had with you just before we started. I started preaching and then I want us to pray together. So I'm going to tell you what I want us to pray together first and then I'll share the vision with you. I want us to pray over the church. I want us to ask God to heal His church starting with our local body. Not because I believe that we're the most important but because we can't exactly expect to do and communicate healing to the rest of the church if we're not. It's kind of the mama in the airplane. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first so that you don't pass out while you're trying to take care of your kid. I want us to pray for our local body, for God to heal us. And then I want us to pray that that healing flows to the rest of the, the church. As in the church, capital C, global church. Now, I want to share with you the vision that I had before I got up to preach. Guys, after I share this vision, let's cut the live stream so that we can pray together. I was sitting there and I, you know, to be honest, I I just I told you I wasn't in the right headspace or heart space today. Um just things were frustrating me. Not like I said, not with you guys, just things in my mind and my heart. I couldn't get the frustration off of me. And so I was just I was just like, God, I don't know if anyone else is feeling like this this morning. But if they are, what should I do? Like, what what can I do to to help this atmosphere? And then it became apparent that it was just me. So um, or at least that's what I was led to believe, that it was just me. And so I began to kind of just sit and just meditate on God and then I saw this as I was sitting there with my eyes closed I saw this giant tub and I couldn't really see the dimensions of the tub but it was a tub filled with water and there was something that was black and it was being pushed down into the water and it looked like it was being pushed by hands but I couldn't see the hands but it was being pushed down into the water and when it was in the water it wasn't black But it was uh, filled with like stars and constellations and it was just absolutely beautiful. You guys think about those those scenes that you see of the cosmos where they're showing you just how beautiful space is, where it's bright and it has all the waves of, of gold and flickers of different colors and it's just absolutely beautiful. And that's what this object looked like when it was in the water. But when it was pulled out, it was black again. And then it was put back in the water. It was the beautiful picture again. And as I watched, I began to realize that the thing that was being pushed in the water and pulled out was a blanket. And so I asked God, what's this mean? And then I immediately felt in my spirit the interpretation was that the blanket was the church. And the tub of water was God's glory. And that when the church was pushed into the glory, it was beautiful. But when it was outside of the glory, it was black and filthy. And the church was supposed to stay. In the glory and be beautiful, but it's going back and forth, back and forth. And then I, this wasn't part of the interpretation, but this thought just came to me what's the purpose of a blanket? To cover. And God said, The day's coming where the whole earth will be covered with His glory. And I began to realize that what God was communicating is that the church. If the church will be healed and will let God come and the Spirit of God heal the church and reside in that glory, then God's glory will cover the earth because the church will be the blanket and accomplish that covering. Amen.